It's the year 1979, and in this episode, a brief summary of the technical specs of the Atari 400 and 800, discussions of the classic computer magazines Creative Computing and Compute, and a review of a game original to the Atari 8-bits and destined to become an all-time classic, Star Raiders. Also, feedback, Douglas Adams, cryptography, I take offense to an article in Creative Computing, and a whole bunch of links in the show notes. This is the Player Missile Podcast. I'm Rob McMullen, and we're ready for episode one. monthly podcast with at least three weeks between episodes. So yeah, I clearly bit off more than I could chew thinking I could go through all the 1979 magazines and review a game in two weeks. And you know, since I don't have physical copies of many of the magazines, I've been using the PDFs at archive.org, which is great. They're uh, searchable. I've been able to type in Atari and it highlights all the occurrences in the text. And the problem is, is the PDF rendering in Firefox is like super slow. It's just forever when you're going through 1,500 pages. So me being me, I tried to use some Python to help speed up the situation. So I tried to download a PDF, open it up in GIMP, get as much layers, then use a Python script to save it out in individual pages, and then use a command line image viewer, which is fast, but then I can't search. So on a whim, I tried Chromium, and there you go, problem solved. Quicker rendering, and I can search. But all that work messing around with Python uh, reminded me of a quote by Douglas Adams. I didn't quite remember the quote, so I had to search through a bunch of uh, stuff on the internet. And it was a fun rabbit hole to go down. And I finally found it. He said, I am rarely happier than when spending an entire day programming my computer to perform automatically a task that would otherwise take me a good ten seconds to do by hand. Such a good writer, and died far too young. If you haven't read any of his stuff, just stop the podcast now and do some reading. So many good quotes, and, and a computer guy. And while I was down that rabbit hole, uh, searching for stuff on, um, on his quote, I found out that the first computer he ever saw was a Commodore PET, which is the same one I saw for as my first computer. So he's probably best known for Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is not only a great book, but a really, really hard text adventure game that came out in 1984, and I'm sure I'll cover that in some future episode. So it was the very first text adventure I ever tried, and it kind of soured me on text adventures, really, because I thought they were all that difficult. Wow, there's a number of mental leaps and restarts you had to go through just to get like the Babel fish into your ear on that Vogan spacecraft was... I, I couldn't even figure that out, and that was like the first major problem in the game. Hitchhiker's Guide was also a movie. It wasn't terrible or anything. I wasn't a super fan. But you definitely can't go wrong with Stephen Fry narrating as the guide. But I digress. So, feedback. Got some feedback. I was mentioned on the Antic podcast, so yay, thanks guys. At the time they recorded their podcast, my episode zero wasn't even out, so thanks for plugging it in advance. And even if the lead-in was Atari underwear. Several folks gave me feedback that they heard about the podcast from you guys, so thanks very much. 
another podcast, No Quarter, one of the co-hosts, Carrington, mentioned the podcast as well, so thanks, Carrington. In a bunch of episodes of Retro Computing Roundtable, and even on No Quarter, so whenever Atari 8-bits come up, Carrington, without fail, mentions that he loves the industrial design of the 800 and how it's his favorite machine, iconic design, and he said he wants to get one eventually. So they're both Apple II guys, and, and Mike is even an Apple III guy. And as an aside, if you're interested in that machine, you should check out his podcast with Paul Hagstrom. It's Drop Three Inches, the premier Apple III podcast in the entire interweb. I actually know nothing about the Apple III except what I've learned on that podcast. And it's, uh, while it's not Atari, it's, it's very interesting. More feedback. Got some feedback from Ferg from the Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast. A very nice note from him, and it's particularly encouraging to hear from him because I'm, <laughs> I'm totally copying the format of his podcast. So, uh, yeah, thanks, Ferg, for not getting upset at absolutely doing a carbon copy of your podcast format. So Ferg said, I really enjoyed episode zero, and I'm excited for what's to come. I didn't have an Atari computer until I picked up an 800 in the mid-90s. came with a ton of floppies full of crack games and 5200 ports. I loved playing the games and never used it for anything else. So that's why I'm really looking forward to your show. I packed up the 800 when we moved in 98 and haven't played it since. Then he said, I want to try Star Raiders on it. I never did that when I was playing in the 90s, despite it being one of my favorite 2600 games. So thanks for that. Thank you also for the kind words about my show. I really appreciate it. Well, I turn that right back around, Ferg, and say thank you for writing into my show. I really appreciate that. Oh, and also he sent me a link to a really detailed Atari timeline, which I'll put in the show notes. Over on Twitter, Bill Kendrick sent me some feedback. Bill's the guy behind the Atari Party, which is a yearly event that seems to alternate between Davis, California, and Sunnyvale. Uh, He was interviewed also in Antic Podcast episode number 12. So Bill said he also started out with a 1200XL computer. Yeah, like I mentioned in episode 1, I started out with a 1200. And at the time it was maligned because of the incompatibilities, you know, having to use the translator disc. But now apparently it's, it's one of the most collectible of the Atari machines. I guess probably because it had the fewest number produced apart from the almost mythical 1450 XLD. I got some email from Jack Nutting, who said, uh, Nice job on episode zero. Well, thanks very much, Jack. I found out about your podcast via Antic. Sounds like you and I are about the same age and similar Atari experience. I got my first 400 at the beginning of 1983, uh, just before the XL series came out, and later graduated to an, a 130 XE. I've been out of the world for 25 years, but recently started playing with emulators again, partly for fun and partly to show my kids what it was like in the olden days. I really like the idea behind your podcast and hope it goes well for you. Well, thanks, Jack. Yeah, I am hoping it goes well, too. <laughs> he also sent some feedback about Star Raiders, which I'll discuss when we get to the game review section. I got a note from Kyle Kubik, who noted that I was talking about building a MAME cabinet, and he sent me a link to some images that he used as side art for a cabinet that he built, and it's pretty cool. So I'll include a link to that in the show notes. And I got another email from Rick Keane, who said he heard about the podcast listening to No Quarter. So thanks again, Mike and Carrington. He said he also listens to Ferg's Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast. And he says he's written to both of those podcasts, too. It turns out he says he, doesn't play a lot of, he didn't play a lot of 8-bit games, but he played a lot of stuff on the 2600 and then on the Atari ST. And he says also there's some crossover there. He said he was always fascinated by computer graphics and kept trying to create art on the computers. It was a challenge on all of them, and he said the Atari ST is where he started to figure things out. So he'd been doing some illustrations and paintings on the ST, and a disc full of those images got left behind at an Atari computer store. 
then you got a call from the people doing ST Log, which was which was a section in Analog, but it would eventually become its own magazine. And so he did a few covers for them using Degas on the ST as well as illustrations for the interior. Rick sent me a link up for one of the covers that he did for ST Log, so I'll include that in the show notes. He said, I'm looking forward to your future podcasts, especially your review of Star Raiders. I had it for the Atari ST, but I don't think it was even close to the one for the 8-bits, or the one that I play now on the 5200. You're off to a great start, and I wish you the best. Actually, I think the 5200 is the same as the 8-bit version, so if you play that, I think you're playing the same thing. I think the controller setup is a little different, just because you don't have the full keyboard on the 5200. I got a couple other notes of encouragement over on Twitter and email, so thanks for those. It's been fun to see that there might be an audience for this podcast. That's cool. Also got a little bit of feedback on the Atari Age forums. So thanks especially to the Atari Age user RJ who posted in a couple threads about the podcast. Thanks very much. Before we get into the magazines, I'm going to go over some of the background and technical specs of the Atari 400-800 machines. Just as a refresher, or maybe if you didn't have Ataris growing up and you would like a little bit of background information so the Atari 400-800 had a 6502 processor running at 1.79 megahertz for the NTSC version, or 1.77 megahertz for the PAL version. Uh, the NTSC was at, ran at six, 60 hertz, and the PAL is at 50 hertz, which implies that the PAL version had a longer vertical blank interrupt, which means in the PAL version you had more time to process stuff in the background between frames. There was 64K of RAM available to be ad- addressable at any one time. Of course, as time went on, they used bank switching to get around that to address more RAM, but you could only have 64K of RAM addressable at any one time. So just to note, the Commodore 64 and the Apple II had the same 6502 processor. Well, technically, I guess the Commodore had the 6510. But the, both of those machines ran at 1 megahertz, not at 1.79. So the Atari was faster. But it, I'm just surprised that because you know, the Commodore 64 didn't come out until, I don't know, 83, maybe 84. Surprised they didn't go with a faster machine, especially since by that time, MOS was owned by Commodore. So you think they could have cranked up the processor speed. So there are a bunch of custom chips in the Atari. There's three main ones, though. There's the Pokey, Antic, and the CTIA, or GTIA in later versions. The Pokey is named for potentiometer and keyboard controller, but ironically, it's sort of best known as the sound controller. It's a four-channel audio processor that does, I think, I think it does three types of waveforms. Is it triangle, square? Or maybe it's just two. Maybe it's just triangle and square waves. But they're independent voices. Honestly, sound programming was the weakest area for me. I have no musical talent whatsoever, and it's I was never able to get the pokey to do anything except click and beep. So the Antic chip is one of the specialized processors. It's a 2D frame buffer for text and bitmap graphics. It also handles the horizontal and vertical fine scrolling. But it really is a processor. It's, it takes programs called display lists and sets the video mode for a set of scan lines. So each line in the display list can create a number of scan lines in a particular mode, and then in the next group of commands for the display list, you can actually change the mode. So you can have multiple modes on the same screen, all ordered in rows. So you could have a row of very fine graphics, then you could have a row of really large text, and you go back to fine graphics. And it's a pretty powerful system. It also allows for a display list interrupt after every item in the display list, such that you can trigger a little interrupt, and there's a teeny little bit of processing time where you can do something, like you can change the background color, or reposition a sprite or something. Antic also controls the graphics modes, and there are a bunch of different graphics modes, but really two were used primarily for graphics-based games, and there were two additional modes that were primarily used for text-based or tile-based games. 
For the graphics, there was basic modes 7 and 7 plus, which is antic mode 13 and 14. There's also a high resolution mode that is 320 by 192, but that was only a two color mode, although you could get more colors through artifacting. And artifacting is when in high resolution on a TV monitor, a pixel by itself is a different color than two pixels next to each other. But most games were in the 160 by 96 mode 7 or the 160 by 192 mode 7 plus. For tile-based games and most scrolling games, there's Antic Mode 4 and 5, which are kind of like text modes. They're either 40 by 24 or 40 by 12 characters, but each character is a 4 by 8 four-colored tile. And so that was an easy way to get a big scrolling playfield not using much memory. So it was very fast. It's much faster than trying to scroll one of the big graphics modes. So the other interesting custom chip is the CTIA, or later it was the GTIA, which provides the color for the playfield generated by Antic. And it also controls the player missile graphics, which are sprites. So player missile graphics are an overlay over top of the background, but provides collision detection with either the background or other players. So there's four sprites. Each of them can be 8 bits wide and 256 bytes tall. And there are four missiles. Each of those are 2 bits wide and 256 bytes tall. And the four missiles can, can be combined to form a fifth player. So each player has an independent color, and they can be doubled or quadrupled in width on the screen. The horizontal position is controlled by setting a value in the register, but the vertical position, you've got to move an image up or down in the bytes of the player memory. So the Atari didn't have expansion slots. It had the SIO bus, which is a serial bus. It's a 13-pin connector, kind of a, it's a D-sub, bigger than the joystick connector. It supported up to 19,200 baud, and I think the disc may have only transferred at 9,600 baud. But because it was all serial, the SIO peripherals required intelligent hardware, which on one hand offloaded work from the CPU, but on the other hand it increased the price because it required a, a microprocessor to control all the peripherals. So Joe DeCure, one of the designers of the SIO bus, said that they really wanted expansion slots to compete with Apple. But because of the F FCC regulations, they had to have this big aluminum housing. Apple got around that. They didn't have to have the big shielding because Apple didn't supply an RF modulator. But because Atari wanted this to go right to the home user, they had an RF modulator built in, and that then required FCC approval to make sure that it didn't interfere with over-the-air broadcast TV. So Joe DeCure actually thought that was ultimately what doomed the machine was the lack of the expansion slots. The keyboard on the Atari was a... There were two different keyboards. The 400 had a flat membrane keyboard that was really hard to type on. You really had to put a lot of effort into pressing down the keys. It was designed as like a spill-proof keyboard to be more like kid-friendly. But it was really just... It was very, very difficult. You wouldn't want to type a program in on that. I can only imagine typing in one of the magazine listings or one of the binary data statements for one of the, for some of the games like you know, Livewire or Planetary Defense where you're just typing hex digits all the time. I would just be miserable. Uh, the 800 had a full-stroke keyboard, and both machines had a set of four special keys. They were Start, Select, Option, and Reset. Start was provided to start games, and then Select and Option. There's no real clear distinction about what Select and Option did. Each game was free to assume you know, whatever functionality it wanted, like if you wanted to change levels or characters or whatever. There was no standard thing that said, oh, select is used for number of players, and option is nothing, no standard thing at all. So that's a bit of the technical background of the Atari computers. The XLs are a little bit different, and we'll cover those in future episodes when they come out. I ran across a link in Atari Age about the number of units of all these of contemporary computers sold. So the Commodore 64 was the big winner of the 8-bit era. It sold 17 million, 
and they estimated that the Atari 8-bits, including 400s, 800XLs, and XEs, probably sold about 2.5 million worldwide. But honestly, how did the Atari not win? I mean, it had great graphics, it was faster than any other 6502 machine. I mean, really, it's a rhetorical question, because we know there were so many problems with the Atari marketing, and there was turnover in the upper management, the brain drain, all the people leaving to go to Activision, the Magic, set up their own companies. The really odd decision not to release developer documentation until about 81, I think, when Chris Crawford sort of led the push and wrote Dairy Atari with some of the other Atari employees. It was a couple of years early on when there wasn't a lot of developer documentation, so it was just hard to find out how to write really quality stuff. And there's also bad luck. I mean, I don't intend to badmouth any other platforms, but, you know, this is an Atari podcast, so Atari rules. But seriously, why didn't Atari win? Oh, well. It won in our hearts, right? So now we're going to move on to the magazine section of the podcast. So this podcast is covering pretty much all of 1979, which, as I mentioned before, was a bit of a mistake. That was a lot of magazines to cover, and so I won't be doing this many magazines again. But the first magazine we're going to look at is Creative Computing. It was published from October of 1974 through December of 85. I don't have any magazines in my collection here. In fact, I my collection is all of three magazines. I have two computes and one antic. I had a whole bunch of analogs, and I don't know where they are. I had fewer antics, but I had some of those, and I don't know why I only can find one antic. I really want to know what happened to my analogs. Anyway, so it was founded by David H. All, initially focused on microcomputers, which, like, timeshare systems like the PDP-8. His first subscriber base was 600 people, but he ordered an additional an initial print run of 8,000 issues, and sent them, unsolicited and free of charge, to libraries and schools across the U.S. It was initially printed on newsprint and staple-bound, and wasn't didn't didn't have much advertising. It was relying on subscription fees. In uh, mid '75, he switched focus to microcomputers because the Altair 8800 had come out. And by December of '76, he switched to a glossy cover and started taking advertising. They went monthly in '79 and were acquired by Ziff Davis in 81, and then ceased publication in 85. At some point after they switched to the glossy format, they also changed to a flat spine, I guess called a perfect binding, where they can print the magazine's title and issue number and stuff on the spine of the magazine. Certainly by the time I saw them, they were, they were bound that way. So the first creative computing I looked at was volume 5 number 4 which is April 1979 and the reason I started there was because that's the first issue that mentioned the Atari computers so this issue has a $2 cover price and the cover says for women only you can use a computer and right off the bat holy cow I don't know what to say about that that would obviously not fly today so the cover image itself is not bad it's just a picture of a smiling woman who's flipping through a box of discs there's some David Lightman-style metal box with vertical disk drives in the background, but the CPU itself looks like it's something called the Vector 1. It was made by a company called Vector Graphic, which was started by three people, but notably that two of them are women. It was the first computer company started by women. The Vector 1 was apparently an Altair 8800 clone, but had a high-resolution 256 by 256 display. So there's only one reference to the Atari 8-bits in this, and that's an announcement from the winner CES, where it says, Atari, the video game people have come out with two personal computers, the Model 400 for home use and the Model 800 for business applications. The 400 has a touch keyboard 
cassette interface, and some fantastic educational entertainment and home application software. The 800 has a standard ASCII keyboard, cassette, floppy, and printer interfaces with business software packages. Both systems are 6502-based. Use voice prompts via the second channel of the cassette and come with BASIC. And then we get to the cover story. It says, Four Women Only Making Friends with That Computer by Lorraine Mecca. So, yep, I'm prepared to be offended. Obviously, it's a different era now, but the article starts with, Are you a computer widow? Does your husband disappear almost every night into an electronic world of his own? And it's just, wow. I mean, this article clearly couldn't be written that way today. I mean, it's housewife this and your husband that. I mean, it's just absolutely sexist. It's just, yeah, I'm still kind of stunned. And it almost soured me on continuing on with creative computing. I almost decided just to throw it out of the whole podcast. I mean, if you were somehow able to overlook all this sexist writing, it's, it's sort of a basic introduction to computers and describing things as, as if the reader had never seen anything related to computers. But it is written in a totally sexist way, and they throw in some condescending comment, like, it says to count up the number of disk drives and that you're entitled to as many new dresses as that because disk drives are only found in the home of a computer connoisseur and his wife should be dressed accordingly. I mean, come on, holy cow. It's just every paragraph is just some sentence that I just can't believe is written. I mean, introducing things to absolute beginners is a, is a great service, but the stereotypes in this article are just terrible. I suppose it's a sign of the times, but still, you know, if I had daughters, I would not let them read this, or maybe just for historical reason to say, this is really how it was. You know, this was not an uncommon attitude at the time. But yeah, I'm totally offended. I had no idea I'd get into social commentary, and I, I didn't expect this. I honestly didn't, I didn't ever, it didn't occur to me that this stuff would be as sort of overtly written. And I guess that's just, you know, the difference between being a kid and an adult, and like, I suppose I was looking back with selective memory, just, you know, forgetting the ugly stuff. I mean, I can only imagine the challenges there must have been at that time to have been a woman and trying to break into the computer science field or, you know, any engineering, math, anything. On the last episode of No Quarter, actually, Mike and Carrington talked about issues and relating to gender and gaming as well, so if, if you haven't listened to that, you should go listen to that episode. Like, they were talking about Miss Pac-Man and how the regular Pac-Man has no sort of adorning accoutrements, but then Miss Pac-Man, of course, has a little bow and red lipstick. You know, why is everything just assumed to be a, a male character unless there's additional stuff on it? So they talk a whole bunch about that. It's a, very, it's a really interesting discussion they had, so I encourage you to listen to that episode. On the Retro Computing Roundtable, uh, Earl Evans, one of the hosts there, has had some stories about he and his daughter building some computers from scratch, and that's great. I, I love hearing that, you know, that there's more encouragement nowadays so yeah, really, I debated quite a bit, actually, after reading this article as to whether or not I would continue looking at creative computing. And I think I will continue looking at it, but I will definitely point out instances like this where it's just inappropriate in today's world. So there's another section in the middle of the creative computing called the Complete Computer Catalog. And there's another blur about Atari's, and it says Atari will shortly introduce two new computer systems that have been developed for use by the people with no prior computing experience, and those with experience and sophisticated needs and requirements. And then it says, Circle 257 on the reader service card. And there's a little bit of nostalgia there, the reader service card. These reader service cards would have, like, hundreds of numbers on them, and you'd circle the numbers that you want, send it back to the magazine, and I guess they'd pass that on to the advertisers, and then you'd be on their mailing list and get stuff from them. Basically, you're signing yourself up for spam. 
but in this case, it's actual paper. Snail mail spam. Yeah, today they just ask for your email address and spam you that way. Oh, and there's an article about the uh, Marin Computer Center, which is a, <laughs> they say it's a new age learning center. But this article is notable for this paragraph. It said, Alarmists and political paranoids argue that computers are potentially dangerous and that they can be used to store incredible amounts of very personal data and then recall that information at an astounding rate. They become uneasy at the thought of the master computer controlled by the CIA. Yeah, well, they were totally wrong about that. Yep, they should have said NSA. Then they would have been absolutely accurate. So the Ataris weren't released yet, but I did find an ad for an Apple II that was $1,195 for a 16K Apple II. I found an ad for a 16K Commodore Pet for $995, and an 8K Exidy Sorcerer for $895. And they had a fun t-shirt that said, I'd rather be playing Space War for 5 bucks." And the back cover for actually all the magazines in, for 1979, all the creative computings in 1979... The back cover was an ad for the Ohio Scientific Computer, which is, it said, it claimed was the first floppy-based system for under $1,000. So the next issue of Creative Computing was the May 79 issue. The cover was some sort of fireworks exploding in the outline of a head. I don't know, maybe brain activity or something. There weren't any 8-bit references in this issue. There was a reference to the Touch Me game by Atari, I don't know if you remember that from... If you read Atari Inc. Business's Fun, they mentioned the development of that system. I think it was... As I recall, it was to be released several years prior, but got held up for some reason. I can't remember exactly. There's an ad in here for more basic computer games, which I think I mentioned in the last podcast was the first computer book I ever had. There's an article about the FCC testing, and there's a blurb about how Atari, among others like Apple, Commodore, Radio Shack were asked by the FCC to, to submit their computers for testing under the ruling that they can test any equipment that can cause radio interference. And the FCC compliance is why the Atari has a, the big, the 800 anyway, I think the 400 as well, have a big aluminum shield and why there's no expansion slots. And like I mentioned before, Jody Cure was saying that they really were pushing hard for the expansion slots, but there was just no way to do the shielding. The June issue of Creative Computing has... Um, Big Bird Riding a Carousel. And there's an article inside about Sesame Place, which is the plans for a Sesame Street theme park at Bush Gardens, which opened in 1980 in Pennsylvania. There's an ad for WordStar, which is an old word processor that was, I think, in use up until the 90s when it became sort of abandonware. And then, actually, it's it's the word processor that, that's still used by several authors, including George R.R. R. Martin, who uses it to write Game of Thrones. There's an article that has Pi printed to... 8,182 places, which immediately led me to think of the Weird Al song, White and Nerdy, so I've included a link to that video in the show notes. And if you hear me humming anything in the background, yep, i got Weird Al on the brain right now. Oh, and this is great, I found a link to a computer called the InnerTube 2. Yep, so the InnerTube computer. It's just a series of tubes. <laughs> yeah, apparently it's a, it's a dumb terminal made by Intertech, called the Intertube 2, that predates, what's that guy's name, was it Stevens, Ted Stevens, is he, did he guy, did he coin the series of tubes? Oh, and finally in this issue, there's an article called the Software Copyright Forum, 
And in this issue in particular, they were talking about that a CPM user group was distributing stuff that Creative Computing holds the copyright to. And I guess they had a big mail-in campaign, and they were trying to figure out whether to litigate. But David, all the publishers, said, uh, frankly, we do not intend to take this case to court, because realistically, the cost of preserving one's copyright in this new field precludes any effective enforcement. The legal issues appear to be so muddy that it could take tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees, and a satisfactory resolution might not still be reached. And the only people who would really benefit would be the lawyers. So copyright and copy protection is an issue that we'll come back to because, well, ultimately it, it did kill the software market for the Atari, which probably then killed the hardware market for the Ataris as well, because if nobody was publishing software for it, there were fewer people wanting to buy hardware. Okay, the July 79 issue cover pages, moles and trolls, moles and trolls, work, 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 work. It's all about animals and ecology simulation. So I'm going to skim over this one. As it turns out, there were a few interesting articles. Um, there was one on public key cryptography on a TRS-80, which, and I'm hugely into cryptography. I think it's a really cool subject. And there's a great book by Simon Singh called The Code Book. I'll include a link to that in the show notes. The August 79 issue, there's a, on the cover it's a sword and shield dude in some sort of fantasy worldscape. And they're talking about AI and can computers think. So there's an article on the Chicago CES in June that, for one, introduces the Intellivision, which I've started listening to the Intellivisionary podcast, even though I never had an Intellivision. I think I'm on episode five now. And it's a, it's a, certainly if you like Intellivision, you should listen to it. But even at, as someone who doesn't, didn't have an Intellivision, I think it's a, it's a fun podcast. At the June CES, Atari did have their 400 and 800 there. It said they announced a very extensive line of educational tape cassette programs. They said, we find these releases especially impressive given Atari's heritage as a game company. Later in the magazine, there's an interview with Peter Rosenthal of Atari. He's one of the marketing guys there. The interviewer said, Atari's coming out with a product that has no immediate capabilities for the small business market. You're obviously betting on the home market. And Peter Rosenthal immediately took offense to that and said, first, I would take issue with, on one point, is that we don't have capabilities for the business market. So here they are, the computers aren't even out and they're already fighting the image as a game company. Maybe that's really what doomed Atari. It was just the name. It really seems like it was the most powerful computer at the time. If you're into more technical stuff, there's a white paper on the database used by Adventure by Scott Adams. This is not the Dilbert Scott Adams. This is another guy, Scott Adams. So it's all about the text parser, which is two-word sentences like Get Lamp. And speaking of that word, there's a film called Get Lamp by Jason Scott of same guy who does archive.org. So I'll include a link to that film in the show notes. And this is the first time I saw there's an ad for this, it said a cassette magazine for the Atari, called Eridus. I looked it up, I'd never heard of it before. It said it was initially advertised as a magazine, but then went on to tutorials. But I could only find two that were referenced in Atari Mania. Woo, this is a lot of magazines, and we're only at September 1979. So this issue has a cover with Apple IIs in the classroom. And there's another ad for an Apple II Plus for 16K, the 16K version for $1,195. So there's an article about uh, CES again. It says, For those lucky enough to get close to Atari's demonstration games and computers, there were several new cartridges to test, at least one of which was also in need of some instructions. Oh, there's an interesting article here called The Levy Wager. 
which is about chess and when a computer will beat a human playing chess. And I'll also include a link to uh, the human-computer chess matches at Wikipedia, which was an interesting read. There's another little article here about the FCC plans for reducing testing requirements, which, again, not want to harp on the FCC, but that required the they required the big aluminum shield in the Atari. Or actually, I think Atari sort of preemptively put the big aluminum shield in there in order to make sure they passed any FCC requirements. But still, that meant no expansion slots. Definitely a contributing factor to the lack of success of the Atari relative like the Commodore 64 or the Apple II. Which although I suppose is interesting because the Commodore 64 didn't have an expansion bus. Well, I shouldn't talk. I don't really know that much about the Commodore 64. But they didn't have any built-in slots anyway. I also, in this issue, I saw an ad for a book on Atari Basic. So it says, An exciting new guide to the soon-to-be-released Atari 400 and 800 home computers teaches the basic language used in the Atari systems. Be the first in your club to know the capabilities of the Atari sound and graphics and discover numerous new games and applications. So the October 79 issue has essentially a picture of Gandalf sitting in a terminal. And the only wasn't any Atari 8-bit stuff. There was, a, there was a review of 10 Atari VCS games. So I'll include a link for that in the show notes. The November 79 issue had a cover was like a yellow diamond shape with pseudo 3D mountains or something. I don't know. That was hard to describe. And it, this issue includes the first Atari computer ad. It's a nice full-color ad showing both computers, both the 400 and the 800, with the emphasis on the 800. And it says, compare the built-in features of leading microcomputers with the Atari personal computers. And go ahead, compare apples and oranges. They're most expensive against our least expensive. And it goes on to talk about the Atari graphics. It says, all controlled from a full 57-key ASCII keyboard, but they emphasize upper and lower case. And the system is FCC-approved with a built-in RF modulator. Let me talk about the sound a little bit. And then the high-speed serial I.O. port, the SIO, says you can add a whole family of smart peripherals, including four individually accessible disk drives, high-speed dot matrix printer, and the Atari program recorder. <laughs> Don't know that I really want to advertise the cassette recorder, but there you go. They go on to say, make your own comparison wherever personal computers are sold. Circle 112 on the reader service card. <laughs> So later in the magazine, there's a comparison of personal computers where they have a chart comparing six of the computers at the time. They compare the TRS-80 Model 2, the Apple II, the PET, the CompuColor 2, the Atari 800, and the TI-994, and not the 994A, just the 994. There is a little typo. It said the 800 has a 380 by 192 graphics when it's really 320 by 192. But the, they list the Atari as an even 1,000. The... Pet looks like it retails for seven ninety five. The TRS eighty for eight forty nine. The Apple II is still sitting at eleven ninety five. But I'll include a link to that chart in the show notes. And finally, we get to the last issue of Creative Computing for seventy nine, the December issue. The cover is an astronaut on the moon reflecting a computer monitor in the helmet visor. And there's another big full color ad by Atari, and this one's only for the eight hundred. And it says more capabilities than any other personal computer under a thousand dollars. And it shows an 800 with an 810 disk drive and the 820 printer, as well as a 410 program recorder. And they include sort of a big screen image. It's kind of fake. There's no monitor with it. But it looks definitely looks like an image that the 800 can generate, so they weren't fudging that. So it's good to see the Ataris advertised at this point. So the magazine is a December issue, so it probably came out in, what, end of November. 
I found various sources saying that you, you could start to buy Ataris in limited quantities starting in October, but I don't think they were really available in, in very many in much quantity until either late in the year or early in 1980. Yeah, and the limited amount of software available in 1979 also shows non-Atari related, well at this point non-Atari related, but there's a link, there's an advertisement for the Temple of Apsi game, which eventually gets ported to the Atari. But this one I think is for the TRS-80. And again, just like all the back covers on all these issues of creative computing, it was an ad for the Ohio Scientific Computer. And finally we're done with creative computing. So there wasn't really much Atari interest in, so I think for future for future episodes of the podcast... I think I'm just going to skim over the creative computings and only search for the Atari keyword. So if it doesn't have the Atari keyword, I think I'll probably skip it. I'm still upset about that sexist article. I just am appalled. There was one issue of Compute magazine in 1979, the inaugural Compute. Originally it was called the Pet Gazette, and it was refocused to cover computers that used the 6502 processor, which also included the kit computers like the stuff I've never heard of really, like the Rockwell AIM-65, and the ubiquitous, according to Creative Computing, Ohio Scientific Computer. So Compute was founded by Ken Lindsay. And that's, this first issue was October 1979. There were no other issues in 79. It was bimonthly in 80, and then monthly starting in 81. Uh, the support for the kit computers was dropped somewhere around issue 16, and the Commodore PET was dropped in issue 40. So the platforms that were the really the mainstays of the magazine were the Commodore VIC-20, the Commodore 64 when that came out, the Ataris, the TI-994A, and the Apple II series. Compute dropped their support for the Atari 8-bits after the April 1988 issue, but they continued publication until 94, but we don't care about Compute after 1988. So in this first issue, they have an editorial that says, We won't review a product from a press release. When you see a review in Compute, you'll know it exists. We can't always guarantee that it exists in quantity, says, e.g., note the Atari review. John Victor reviews from experience. He has had his hands on one of the very few Atari, the very few computers that Atari has released to their suppliers. But he goes on, but that's the nature of the business. If we're reviewing a prototype, we'll try to tell you. And then he says, one last comment on prototype reviews. The lead time in the publishing industry is tremendous, frequently four to five months. And in fairness to these companies, we'll review prototype products as one means of shortening that lead time. We'll make it clear in the review that the product is a prototype and may suffer from developmental bugs and hasty documentation. Nonetheless, we think it will service both readers and emerging companies. They go on to describe four sections of the magazine. There's a 6502 section. There'll be a business and industrial section. There's an education section. And then the final section is the gazettes. One for your own special machine. So they offer a pet gazette, an Atari gazette, an Apple gazette, and for now, an SBC Gazette, which is Single Board Computer Gazette. So the cover of this issue is a line art drawing of the PET, the Apple II, the Atari 800, all saying 6502 on their monitors. And this has a $2 cover price. So in the Atari Gazette, they have an introduction to the Atari line of computers, calling it the third generation of microcomputers. I guess the first generation would be, what, the Altair 8800? Second generation would be the PET and the Apple II? I guess that's why they're calling this the third generation? They say it's a cross between a video game and a small computer. Actually, the systems have incorporated the best features from both creating a true personal and home computer system. These systems are excellently suited for the educational and recreational interests of the consumer market. And they go over a bit of the details of the machine. I've kind of covered most of this in the technical description earlier in the podcast. 
he has some he has some opinions about Atari. He says their internal structure is unbureaucratic and solutions oriented. I believe their top management understands the electronics and the marketing of electronics. This is not to say that Atari hasn't made mistakes or won't make mistakes. What I will say is that this company learns from its mistakes. They are strictly a class operation. I guess at this time in you know seventy nine, they're still controlled by Bushnell. They haven't been bought out by Warner, I don't think, at this time. And they certainly haven't gone into the Ray Kassar era. So yeah, later I would take it exception to their the way they describe Atari's management. But again, I don't really want to bash Atari's management. I mean, looking back, it's much easier to second guess. But Although, certainly, <laughs> they did make some mistakes. So there's a couple ads. There's an ad for the Atari, and there's a couple games listed in the ads. There's uh, It's all Atari first-party stuff at this point. So they advertise, they're advertising the basketball cartridge, life cartridge, Super Breakout, and there's a listing for CX4008, a game called Superbug, which I hadn't heard of, and then I searched around Atari Age, and apparently it was a game started by Joe DeCure and never finished, and there's a Atari Age post that I'll link to. Is this the first 8-bit vaporware? So finally we're done with all the magazines, and yeah, I did far too many magazines this episode. I don't know what I'm going to do next time. <laughs> I think I'm just going to either skim them more or do fewer magazines. I haven't figured out what I'm going to do. So if you have any feedback about that, if the magazine stuff is interesting or not, yeah, let me know. Let's now on to the game review of Star Raiders. Star Raiders is an 8K cartridge released by Atari in late 1979 or early 1980. I haven't been able to pinpoint it closer than that. It was written by Doug Neubauer, the same Atari employee who designed the Pokechip, or was part of the team that designed the Pokechip. And interestingly, despite designing the Poke, there isn't any music in the game, but there's quite a lot of sound effects. And there's a few references to him saying that he spent a lot of time trying to get the sound effects to sound like Star Trek. And I think they're quite good, actually. I think they're they're well designed. So it uses the joystick controller along with 20 keys on the keyboard. So this is definitely one that's not a good option to play in the main cabinet unless you have like a Franken panel or a keyboard attachment that goes with it. Star Raiders is listed as one of the 10 most important video games of all time. A committee led by Henry Lowood, who is the curator of the History of Science and Technology collection at Stanford University, and four other members, game designers Warren Spector and Steve Moretsky, academic researcher Matteo Bitanti, and game journalist Christopher Grant. It was a proposal submitted to the Library of Congress, similar to the National Film Preservation Board, so they wanted to start preserving video games and video game artifacts. There's a New York Times article summarizing this, which I'll link to in the, short, in the show notes. Clearly it is an important game. Its influence continued with many games in the future, Wing Commander, Star Wars, X-Wing series... And it was also a game that you could complete, which was pretty rare this early in, in gaming history. And once you do complete the game, it gives you a rank. And as a spoiler, I didn't rank very highly. So I found several interviews with Doug Newbar on the web. In college, he saw the game Computer Space, and it stuck with him. So after graduating from college, he worked for a National Semiconductor, and they had a home computer, and 
video game division. So they got a wire app version of this computer working, and he made a few games for it, and he said one was a computer space-like clone. But then National Semiconductor canceled their project, and most everyone from that group moved on to Atari. So he was hired to do the chip design for Pokey, and the team took about nine months, he said, to take Pokey from the concept to a working chip. Then he said with today's technology, you could probably turn out that chip on like a weekend or something. <laughs> and then he said the atmosphere at Atari was uh, very laid back and quite a shock coming from a big semiconductor company like National. <laughs> he said he was ruined for life. Once Pokey was working, he said there was some free time while they were waiting for the other chips to be completed. So he started working on the game that eventually became Star Raiders. It took him about six months to write. And he did it because he wanted to play a 3D space game. Something that looked like real life and not like cartoon graphics. You know, something that looked like Star Wars or Star Trek. And he said he thought there was a, a coin-up game that had just come out that had a 3D look to it, so there was a precedent. And I'm not sure, I think he might be talking about Tailgunner, maybe? I remember that. Maybe, yeah, maybe Tailgunner was later. But because he wanted to do 3D and he didn't have a reference for the 3D graphics, he had to figure them out all for himself. And since the 8-bits didn't have floating point or fast division, actually they didn't even have division at all in hardware, he had to use something called cordic rotation, which only uses stuff that the 6502 can do quickly, which is addition, subtraction, and bit shift. And that for what it couldn't do quickly, it used lookup tables. He described he wanted explosions that looked real, but that required a division algorithm. And that's why the game slowed down during the explosions, because he says he wasn't able to optimize the division algorithm enough. One of the cool features about the game is that ship and enemies are always moving, no matter what screen is just being displayed, which is pretty unusual for that time. And he said he did that by simply not turning off the 3D software collision detection, regardless of what was being displayed. One of the things you run into on designing any game for the system is the space constraints. And he said because it was an 8K cartridge, stuff he had to do was like the, the graphics used for the photon torpedoes, or actually it's the same as the meteor graphic, except it's anded with some random noise from the pokey chip. So every frame, it would be anded with different stuff, and so that's how you get kind of the sparkle effect as the photon torpedo shoots. So Star Raiders was the only game he wrote for the 8-bits, and he left Atari because they weren't offering royalties and the new companies that started to publish around that time were, you know, like Activision and Magic. Um, he said he was mostly an independent contractor, and then he developed movie tie-in games for 20th Century Fox's new game division. So he did movie tie-ins for Alien and Megaforce in 82, and MASH in 83. And then he did write what some considered to be the best game ever for the 2600, a game called Solaris. I'll let Ferg be the judge of that when he gets there. It was released in 1986, and I'm not sure exactly where Ferg is on the part list of the Atari cartridges, but I imagine it's still a ways away. In terms of the Star Raiders game itself on the 8-bit, you definitely need to read the manual for this game. It is complicated. There is a bit of a backstory, and the 5200 version has even more backstory in the manual, but it's essentially the same game. So the backstory is, is a tree between the Atarian Federation and the Xylon Empire has broken down. So there's a state of war. So your task is to destroy all ships on site. There are three classes of ships. 
There's fighters that attack, cruisers on patrol that won't attack unless provoked, and the base stars that look pretty much just like Cylon base stars from Battlestar Galactica. The base stars take two hits to be destroyed. And in the manual, it actually has to say, you never actually see your ship on screen. You're sitting at the controls looking out into space. Your TV is your window into space. What do you see on the screen? is deep space which surrounds your ship. I'm sure a lot of people were unfamiliar with things and they just look at a star field and actually they probably said, what's a bunch of dots flying around the screen? What is this? So the technical details of the game, the main play mode is mostly graphics 7, which in full screen is 160 by 96 pixels in the four color mode. On the bottom of the main screen there are actually two lines of text in, I think it's Graphics 1, which is the 20 by 24 text mode, but there's two lines of that on the bottom, and the rest is Graphics 7 on top. In the Galactic Chart mode, it's also mostly Graphics 7, and all the other text is Mode 1. There's a few lines on top and some on the bottom. The main screen mode uses a display list interrupt to change the colors of the text mode area, because normally you're limited to four colors for each mode, and so the top being Mode 7, is the graphics part is, has different colors, and the, the colors can change like if your shields are off, the background is black. If your shields are on, the background is blue. And if there are enemies in the sector you just warp to, the background flashes red. Whereas the bottom lines of text stay the same color regardless, so they just use a display list interrupt right before that text screen to change the background and all the colors to the correct text mode colors. To play the game, you use the select button to choose the skill level and then start to begin. These keys also abort the game at any, any point in the game, so you don't want to hit them accidentally. So, apparently, you are the only starship in the entire Federation. I mean, come on, Starfleet. little help, please. Because these guys are tough. This is a tough game. There's a lot of replayability in this game just because it is so tough. The nice part is the novice mode gives you a gentle sort of learning curve because you can't be destroyed by the enemy fire if your shields are up. In the main display mode, you see the starfield. And then the two-line display below it, the first line shows your velocity, the number of kills you've got, the energy left, and the target number, because you can shift around and select different targets using the targeting computer. The second line shows the angle to the target in the horizontal plane, then the angle in the vertical plane, and then the distance to the target. I'll talk a little bit more about the distance, because that was confusing to me a little bit later. There are four levels to the game, the novice level. The only way to lose is if Either the star bases are all destroyed or you run out of energy, or you get hit when your shields are down, because the enemy ships can't damage you when your shields are on. Additionally, the computer steers during hyperspace jumps, which is which can be very tricky. And then there's a pilot, warrior, and commander levels in, in order of increasing difficulty. And the differences are the number of star bases goes up, the number of total enemies goes up, and then you have to steer during your hyperspace jumps. So this is a strategy game, a tactical game, and an energy management game all in one. There are different display modes. There's the forward view and aft view out of your ship. There's the galactic chart. There's a long-range scan. And as I noted before, the action doesn't stop when you're looking at a different screen, so you can happily crash into something or get shot at while plotting out which sector to jump to. So you do have to pay attention. So the simplest thing to think about is the energy game. So everything uses energy, and it's always counting down. So the different subsystems use different amounts, like life support is always on, and then everything else costs some amount of energy. 
So firing a photon costs some energy. Using your hyperspace jump costs energy. Using your impulse drive costs, costs energy. Shields, computer, everything costs energy. When you get too low, you'll have to go to a starbase and get resupplied. You do that by warping to the starbase sector, flying to it, and getting close enough to orbit it. And then a supply ship will come out to you. The strategy portion comes from choosing which target to select. The galactic map is a 16 by 8 grid showing enemies and starbases. You are a flashing dot, and you can move another flashing dot to whichever sector you want to warp to. The Xylons move in squadrons, and there's from one to four ships in a squadron. And there's a different icon for each type. The Xylon fleet will attempt to surround and destroy only one starbase at a time. And when they surround a starbase by getting four squadrons on each of the four cardinal directions. And if they do surround a base, you have one minute to destroy one of the squadrons. When you choose a grid to warp to, you'll have to switch back to the forward view and then keep a cursor near the center of the screen, or you'll end up in a different sector than you intend. The novice game manages this for you, and in the more advanced games, I found this difficult because the controls are odd, so up and down, move the cursor up and down, but left and right are backward. And it just took me, I couldn't get my head wrapped around it. So the tactical portion of the game comes when you warp into a sector that has enemies. This is the mode where you're looking out the front window of the spaceship. So to show the motion when you have your engines on, the stars move. Probably everybody knows what this effect look like, looks like, because you've seen it in countless movies and TV shows nowadays. But to try to describe it to somebody who's never seen it, it's like the stars start sort of in the center of the screen, and they're dim, and they get brighter to you as they get closer and move past your ship. So the stars move sort of radially, and they increase in speed exponentially as they approach the outer edge of the screen. So it looks like they're getting closer to you in this 3D space. That's probably a long-winded and unnecessary description, but, you know, just for completeness. The warp effect is similar, except that the stars start leaving streaks, uh, longer and longer streaks as you accelerate and then finally reach warp speed. So you can select an enemy to attack by using the long-range computer. So you can fly around and try to shoot things, and if you're lucky, the enemies will appear pretty close to you. Your navigation computer on the bottom two lines of the screen displays the angles in the horizontal and vertical planes and then the range to target. If you get both angles to zero and a positive range, the target should be in front of you. When the Xylon ships get close, they're very maneuverable. They change directions very fast, and much faster than you can change. It seems that they only have one shot at a time, and then at most, two seem to attack at any one time. So you have shields which are very necessary, because if anything hits you with your shields down, you will be destroyed. Mercilessly. So pretty much whenever you warp into a sector with Xylons, you better turn your shields on immediately. In terms of fighting back, the targeting computer has crosshairs in the center of the screen and a little indicator at the bottom right of the screen showing if the target is centered horizontally, vertically, or dead center. And nowadays, if they were designing this, they'd probably put that as sort of like a heads-up display where all that stuff would be contained in the crosshairs. But I don't think that was an idiom that was known back then. So if the enemy is... So if the enemy is dead center, both torpedoes will fire simultaneously. Otherwise, it alternates left side and then right side. Your shots appear from below your screen, and they travel straight ahead, but of course, because it's a three-dimensional world, and there's a 3D projection, it shows them getting smaller and sort of converging to the center of the screen in the distance. 
And sometimes it seems like if you get an enemy in the path of the shot, but not in your crosshairs, it can be destroyed. Um, so I don't know if that's a bug, or maybe just the enemy ship is so close that it happens to, or gets in the path of the torpedo before it converges in the distance. If the enemies aren't visible immediately, you can go to a long-range scan and select the next enemy. So this is kind of a confusing view. It's a 2D projection of 3D space. So it's if you're looking like down on your ship from really, really high. So the top of the screen is your direction of travel. The enemies are large flashing dots, but there seems to be, I don't know if they're, if they're tracking occasional meteors or something, but it seems like there's occasionally other flashing dots around there as well. So the instructions say in order to line up a target, you rotate either left or right until you get the enemy in front, and then push the joystick up or down until it's as far away from you as it can be, and that will sort of get it in the, the plane of your target. Then if you flip to the forward view, it should be somewhere in front of you. But I had trouble with this. I, I don't know, maybe it was the range. I definitely had trouble with the range. So it seems like rotating your ship caused the range to decrease and then increase. And so what I finally figured out is I think it's measuring the range in the 2D plane of the direction of travel of your ship. So it's kind of measuring forward and backward distance and not the absolute distance from you to the enemy. I, th- I don't know, I'll have to pull it back and play that play it again, cut it with that in mind, because I was it was definitely confusing. So when you get hit, any of your subsystems can get damaged and you can use you can lose the shields, the weapons, the engines, the computer, the long range scan, or the radio. And you can't lose hyperspace fortunately, or you'd never be able to get repairs. If you do lose the engines, you still have sort of backup thrusters, so you can still move, but just pretty slowly. So you can warp to a starbase and get repairs using these little backup engines. And then there's a little hint in the manual that says you can also warp locally. So you can start a warp and then abort, and then you move closer to something in the same sector. So your radio is what informs you of whether a starbase is surrounded or destroyed, and also it updates the galactic chart. So if you lose your radio, you won't get any more updates until you go visit a starbase. And the starbases are static. They don't change their sectors, so you don't have to worry about the starbase not being there. Unless, of course, it was destroyed while your radio was destroyed and you you aren't updated that way. And there's sort of an interesting... I don't know if I'd call this an Easter egg exactly, but it, it it's different. It's unusual. So on the Ataris, they have this thing called the Attract Mode, which is to prevent burn-in on a CRT monitor. So it kicks on after, I think it's like 10 minutes. And generally what it does is it just alternates the foreground and background colors sort of randomly, so it changes the, the color of the of the screen. But in this one, I guess uh, he lobbied to make the attract screen just the Starfield, which is kind of like ubiquitous now, like a screensaver. Well, and screensavers aren't used that much anymore, but the sort of Starfield simulated screensaver is kind of a common one, so this is like the very first Starfield screensaver. So I played this game as a kid, although I don't think I ever completed it. I'm not even sure I completed it on novice mode. The thing I do remember most is using a sector editor on the disc and changing all the the spaceship graphics into other things like little Star Trek ships or Star Wars ships and stuff like that. I did have some feedback. Uh, Jack Nutting wrote in and said, I don't have any huge insights about the game, but I remember enjoying it at the time. I found it more info than I even remember at the strategy wiki, which you sent a link for and I'll include. I also remember showing it to a Commodore 64 friend in about 84 or 85, and 
He was absolutely dumbfounded by the movement of the Starfield and enemy ships. The C-64 could do a lot of things, but smooth motion was typically not one of them. You know, and actually, I will have to say that I don't know that I've... I'm sure I've seen a Commodore 64. I must have. But I don't think I've... I've certainly never played a game on a Commodore 64. I've never sat at one. I've never... I don't even know that I've typed on a keyboard. So this is a hard game. Uh, there's plenty of replayability because of the challenge. The one thing I didn't have problem with, problems with was the energy management, and probably because I just didn't last long. Even in pilot level, which is just the one above novice. My problem was damage. That was my big problem, I was getting shot too much. Or hit too much. I also had problems using the long-range scan, but I think I maybe have been tracking meteors rather than ships. So most of the time I didn't have to use the long-range scan, and the Xylons found me fast enough. The only time I had to search for them, really, was when they were surrounding a starbase, they kind of seemed reluctant to engage. Or maybe that was just my imagination. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but it might have just been me feeling the pressure trying to kill them all before they destroyed the base. I found the ship easy enough to maneuver around, um, even if it doesn't change directions as fast as the Xylons, it's still it's easy to control. I didn't use the aft view that much. You know, the controls are mapped backwards that way if you're looking if you're looking out the back of the ship. I definitely had problems with the range, but I think after I figured out that the distance meant the distance forward and backward in the plane of your ship and not the absolute like Cartesian straight line distance. So at least it makes more sense now. So yes, at least I'm not confused why it's going you know, negative to positive when you're rotating the ship. The hyperspace jumps were also tricky, and keeping that dang hyperspace cursor centered. Sometimes I'd warp into the next sector, or just randomly warp, it seemed. I also had problems with the strategy. I mean, what to attack next? I didn't get a sense of how the Xylons moved in the galactic map, so I couldn't really predict where they would go. So I'd just go for the nearest enemy, warp there, and just get all guns blazing. So yeah, this is hard. I mean, everything's a challenge, but it's a, it's a fun challenge. This is definitely on my top five list of games I've played for this podcast. But actually, I think it'll stay there, and only in 8K, it's just amazing. It's an amazing achievement. So my high score on novice level, I actually completed the game, uh, Ensign Class 3, and at higher levels, yeah, I'm, I alternate between Garbage Scow Captain and Galactic Cook. But at least I'm a level 5 Galactic Cook. Doesn't look like there was an official uh, high score club competition for Star Raiders, but there is a thread about it, so I'll include that link. The user Dr. Clue posted achieving Star Commander Class 1 with 54 kills, which probably means commander level and not losing any star bases, so that's pretty impressive. There's also an Atari Age post about someone who made a hacked version that didn't have any slowdowns, so I guess they took out um, some of the pixels in the explosion, so it runs faster for that during the explosions. So I'll include a link to that, although I did not play that this time. There was also another thread about a more modern version of the game called X-Tall. I think that was released in 85 or something by Antic Software. But I actually didn't look at that either, and maybe I'll get to there when I get up to 85. And at one point, Tom Hudson, John Bell, and Lee Pappas of Analog fame made an iPhone version called Star Rangers, but it doesn't appear to be active now, and I don't have an iOS device to search for it in the App Store. So that is Star Raiders. Next episode, I'm going to cover a couple of months of 1980, but I haven't decided actually how far I'm going to go or how many magazines I'm going to cover. 
I didn't find any references to the game order of any 1980 games yet, so I'm going to choose one, and I think I will choose Space Invaders by Atari. So we'll check out this clone and see how it stacks up against the arcade version of Space Invaders. So this episode is looking a little long. I'd like to try to keep them under an hour, for my own sanity, partially as well, just because editing takes me like 45 days. So, yeah. I'm also thinking about changing the game selection method and just go by year. I think I'm spending too much time going through the magazines, and I'm not sure that I'm going to get valuable info out of that anyway. Plus, this would allow me to have a list going for every year, and then people can give me suggestions about what should go on each year's list. So until next time, I'd be interested in hearing any feedback about, especially about the magazines and how much detail I should be going into or you'd like to see me go into about the magazine articles. You can send email to feedback at playermissile.com or I'm on Twitter at Atari8BitGames. Thanks for all the feedback for this episode, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>